Hello everyone, Trish Guys here, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned from My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guys is not a legal professional, nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number two, I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly, I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger, feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit. So I recommend after listening to each episode, take a few minutes and think about what you've heard. What resonated with you? Do some things seem a bit more clear to you now? Or do you need to do a bit more digging? The whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things perhaps in a different light or for you to slow down or step back a little bit and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. Today, we are talking about co-parenting, the good, the bad, and the really bad. And I have a special guest joining me today, my trusted colleague, Glenda Lux, who is a registered psychologist in Calgary. She's been practicing at the intersection of psychology and family law since 2001. Glenda has conducted over 100 court-ordered evaluations, such as Practice Note 7 and Practice Note 8, as they are called in Alberta. And Glenda also provides divorce-related forensic services, including parent coordination, co-parent counseling, parental fitness evaluations, and litigation support. Glenda has been qualified as a parenting expert in both provincial court and the Court of Queen's Bench. Glenda has published several peer-reviewed articles in this area and most recently on coercive control and its relevance to families and children and best interest determinations in Canadian family law. Glenda has completed comprehensive training with the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, Association of Family and Conciliation Courts, and Battered Women's Justice Project on Assessing Domestic Violence in Families. Glenda has provided training to family lawyers on domestic violence and has presented at national and international conferences. She also maintains an active blog on several areas relating to co-parenting and family law and parenting issues. Welcome, Glenda. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you, Trish. It is always lovely to talk to you. Well, the listeners are in for a treat today. We're going to be talking about everyone's favorite topic, co-parenting, the good, the bad, and the really bad. And I'm sure with you, as it is with me, every single family, every single parent that I talk with or that I work with, co-parenting or some facsimile of co-parenting or some issue of co-parenting tends to be an issue. And we spend a lot of time talking about that. So I know a lot of listeners are going to be very, very interested in hearing what you have to say, because you have a lot to share with everyone with the vast experience that you have. 
So let's jump right in. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, what are the different styles and types of co-parenting? Sure. I think, you know, right off the top, I touching on what you just said is that it's a tough gig co-parenting. It's it's not easy and it's not easy in intact families. And we do co-parent in intact families because co-parenting is really just parenting sort of in a parallel way in families or a cooperative way. And those are some of the types, right? So we've got cooperative co-parenting, we've got parallel co-parenting, and then we've got conflictual co-parenting. So, um, and they're not all pure. There are sometimes areas where we don't get along so well and it's somewhat conflictual and then there's areas that we do get along fairly well and can make decisions together. I find it interesting that you mentioned that we also co-parent in uh, you know intact families or when people have not divorced or separated and I think that's a really important point to make that a lot of the principles that we talk about good parent uh, co-parenting apply to parents as well that have not separated or divorced. I think there's a lot to be learned because I don't feel that we're necessarily as conscious as we should be as parents. I mean, nobody teaches us necessarily how to be parents and we kind of fly by the seat of our pants, which can be a good thing, but sometimes a bad thing. And oftentimes we just use the roadmap that we were given by our parents. And sometimes that can be like using a Calgary roadmap to drive through Edmonton. And sometimes it can be okay. But, you know, of all the different types that you were talking about of co-parenting, uh, I assume cooperative parenting is what we should all be striving for. Why is that? Why is that so important? Yeah, cooperative co-parenting really, I mean, it is the ideal. It's the pinnacle. It's where decisions are made collaboratively and, you know, routines are made um, together and everyone follows them and disagreements are happening, you know out of earshot of the children. And if they are happening within the earshot of the children, they're happening happening respectfully. They're discussions. There's resolution. The children get to see resolution. The kids get the sense that my parents are taking care of me. They've got this, right? They are, they're the leaders in the family and they're co-leaders. And so it, it sounds lovely and perfect and utopic. And we know that, as you said, in intact families, that's not necessarily what happens all the time. But when you have separated it now there is an extra dynamic in there there is now disconnect as a couple there's perhaps not the same goodwill there's perhaps hard feelings lots of stuff that can get in the way of doing good co-parenting and in fact maybe there wasn't a fantastic cooperative co-parenting in the first place in the in the marriage or in the relationship which possibly even led or was a contributor to the separation so yeah, we should strive for cooperative co-parenting. And I think it takes two to cooperatively co-parent. One parent cannot cooperatively co-parent. Now, you can be respectful and you can do all the right things, but that doesn't mean that your co-parent is going to join you in that. So there's a reality here, I believe, that while you should strive for cooperative co-parenting, sometimes it is just not a possibility and you must move to a different model. You raise a really good point. I know, uh, you know, a lot of people I've worked with, even myself with my own experience at times, you know, you can strive for that. It's like anything, right? You can strive. But if there's another party involved, whether it be kids or a significant other, if they can't or won't come to the table, it, you know, it's, it's a job that's too big for one person. And, um, that's why sometimes mediation doesn't work in certain situations. It works only when two people are willing and uh, want to resolve issues. It's not a catch-all for everything. But so what should 
parents do then when either both notice or only one notices that this cooperative parenting they're striving for isn't working. And as you mentioned, there has to be a different type of parenting. What does that look like and how do parents initiate that and how does that, how does that occur? Yeah, good, good questions. So sometimes for one parent, it's feeling really cooperative. And for the other parent, it's not feeling cooperative. So you may not have a shared perspective of when things aren't going well. Some co-parents want a fair amount of communication and others would prefer to never hear from you unless it's specifically um, specific and timely. And with different perspectives, you get different ideas about how well things are going. So it's not always easy to identify. And of course, communication here is, is huge as it is in every relationship. And so to figure out whether co-parenting is working or not, you know, sometimes it could be as simple as, hey, I'm wondering if we can improve what's going on here, or how do you think this is going? So being really curious, if you have a relationship with your co-parent where you could put that kind of information out and say, wonder if we ought to have a business meeting. Because really in co-parenting, if you think of the kids as a state, as your family as a business, right? And that you are both stakeholders in the lives of these children. And maybe you need a board meeting. Sometimes it's really, really helpful to have that business mindset where you're going to approach uh, conversations respectfully, but with a purpose, right? And the ability to find some kind of a solution. Right, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you're in the business of raising this child together. Whether or not you can do it together is, is one thing, but you really do have a stake in this and your child needs you both, um, maybe perhaps not in the same way. And and I think that's part of the issue sometimes. You mentioned a great point that um, you both... The, the parenting or the cooperation or communication may not be working, but just in different ways. And perceptions are different. Some people want to communicate constantly, others don't. And that typically occurs before they even separate or divorce anyways. And so it just carries on or amplifies. But I like the concept of seeing it as a business of raising the child and that you both are stakeholders. And I know it may sound like easier said than done, but it's all of it is a lot of it has to do with mindset. And I think that's a brilliant way of looking at it. So what would the parenting look like, let's say, if you have that discussion and there's just you're at an impasse, you can't agree, there's just no way that you can communicate. What then does a parent do or what do parents do and what kind of parenting would that look like? Well, I think before you come to that conclusion, it can be really useful again to say, hey, what parts, of, how would you like communication to work? What would work best for you? Would it work good for you to have one email per week on a Sunday evening? You respond to it. We put everything in that one email. Do you prefer that we have a phone call? Do you prefer that whenever something comes up, we, we email each other, text each other? How do you want to do this? And I think when you approach it that way, you're better you're, you're better positioned to find a solution and not come to a, a premature conclusion that you can't communicate. Right. So a, a lot of this is is really some core skills and how you might approach all kinds of conversations in your life. Right. With curiosity, with soliciting ideas, trying to adapt where you can. Now. It may be that's impossible. I'm not just sort of living in la-la land thinking that that'll work all the time because it doesn't, right? And so if you are hitting a roadblock, if you can't get anywhere, sometimes you may have to um, 
invite a third party, invite your co-parent to to meet with you with a mediator, meet with you with a co-parenting coach. See if there is a facilitator of some kind that can help you work this out. And sometimes in those situations too, if you do meet with a co-parenting coach, you can design a system that's sort of like a calendar perhaps or something that's all laid out so that it really minimizes the need to have a lot of ongoing communication. So for instance, summer holidays are planned well in advance. PD days are well in advance. Birthdays, really, when we think of a parenting plan, really it's preemptively going through all sorts of things that are likely to arise and, and deciding beforehand how you're going to manage that. It eliminates the need for a lot of communication. So I think that trying on your own in a really respectful way, followed by an invitation to to work with a helper. And sometimes if that doesn't go anywhere, you may have to go a little further down the road and, and get some legal help to encourage, in quotes, your co-parent to come to the table. I don't throw that out as a first option. You know, I think you again, another brilliant point. And as I'm um, jotting some notes for myself to have a discussion with my husband later, because here I'm assuming all this time too, that my method of communication is desirable for both of us. And, you know, I think you're, you raise an excellent point in that we need to look at all of our relationships, whether it be at work or with our family or parents, siblings, our significant others or children, and, and making sure that we are communicating in a way that works for both of us. And, and you can't always be happy and, and not you can't always have your way. However, I, you know, if some people just don't speak up or you may not be aware. And so I'm definitely going to do that. Something, you know, so much of this is interesting to me that so much of this that occurs after a separation of divorce, I've looked back and I've thought, geez, if we could have only done this, some of us at the beginning, and not to say this would, would thwart a separation or divorce, but we don't spend enough time, I don't think, planning. You mentioned parenting planning and and planning and and, and preparing for things in the future. We do that for weddings and things like that or, or a trip, but I don't know if we do that enough in our relationships, whether it be with our significant other or when we sit down and we want to become parents. Do we even look at the eventualities and talk about that to make sure we're on the same page? Oftentimes people will jump to the conclusion, but that just is not working. And then you have to seek an outside party. And I like your thoughts in that let's try a few more steps first before we go the adversarial route, you know, in terms of seeking legal help. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more that planning goes a long, long way, but there's a reality too, right? We have busy lives and, um, you know, it, it's not always pleasant to just sit with your your ex to have these kinds of conversations. but Boy, isn't that the saying, you know, an ounce of prevention, right? Is it worth a pound of cure for sure? So in that light, now, is this some of the the material that you would work on with uh, families? So if if parents approach you and they need some co-parenting help, is this something that you would help them with? And if so, would you work with them individually or together? What what does that look like? And what kinds of things you work on with the families that are struggling with co-parenting? Yeah, this is the this is part of the work that I do and all families are different. So in terms of how I might work with a, a family, um it can vary. And one of the things that I will do in my practice because I think it's really important is to understand sort of the power dynamics between the 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 families. So for instance, I do a screening for domestic violence and I say that because if there's a situation where someone feels that they can't really bring their views into the room for fear of some kind of repercussion, and I'm not just talking sort of physical repercussion, but some kind of backlash, 
perhaps concern that the kids are going to hear about things that happen in the the co-parenting sessions or, or what have you. I want to understand as best I can how to preserve the best parts of this co-parenting relationship without making it worse for anybody. And sometimes there may be, you know, in that pre-screening, so what what I'm saying is I'm meeting with each parent separately at the beginning to understand the dynamic. And there might be a situation where one parent is extremely anxious about meeting with the other parent, and then they get all jumbled in their thoughts and can't really advocate for themselves and can't say what they really need to say. And so I want to understand that, right? I want to understand if someone is particularly withdrawn, doesn't feel confident in sharing their views or feeling that their views will be heard, all that kind of stuff. So there's sort of a pre-process in my practice where I want to understand the family a little bit. And then that'll help me decide, well, maybe this works best if we do individual sessions. And then I kind of act as a liaison in having these conversations with with couples. Sometimes we work in the same room together. If that can happen, that's fantastic. Sometimes we might do it on Zoom. Sometimes there might be a support person. It really, really depends. And I think that you need to tailor or I'd like to try to tailor as much as possible co-parenting coaching to the dynamics between the parents. And of course, I see parents at all different sort of levels of good, bad, and and really bad. And to be real honest with you, I don't get a lot of good. I don't get a lot of clients in my practice where they just need a little tweak or a little bit of education or what have you. I tend to get those that have struggled, are perhaps on the edge of being legally engaged, if not fully legally engaged, or are looking for a way to prevent being legally engaged. And maybe they haven't talked at all. Maybe there's, I mean, I tend to work on the bad and the really bad in families that are in those dynamics, which is just unfortunate. And and that leads to conversations about the styles of co-parenting, which is really where we started this conversation was, you know, what are the styles of co-parenting, right? And so if they come in with a really conflicted co-parenting situation, maybe we can help develop a parallel style of co-parenting where you're minimizing the amount of communication that has to happen and really trying to wrap your head around there's two worlds, parent one's world and parent two's world, and never the two shall meet other than the really, really essential information. And so there's just a whole range of of dynamics that you can get. So with the parallel parenting and that, that, that always fascinates me because oftentimes that ends up having to be the way couples have to parent, even if it's not stated that, okay, we are parallel parenting. I find oftentimes that happens naturally where roles are different at mom's house than they are dad's house and vice versa. And things are just naturally different as they're going to be in two different domiciles, obviously. But you know, I find that oftentimes perhaps perhaps they thought they were on the same page prior to separating, but they're not now and things are different. But what I always um, not struggle with, but it, it concerns me is how then does the child perceive that and how do, is that handled with the child? Because, you know, as an as an adult, it can be it can be difficult if you're having to go back and forth. I'll give an example. When my ex-husband and I first started separating, we nested. And I know that's not for everyone, but it worked well for us. Um, number one, because, well, actually, more impo- most importantly, it's because it gave me a window into what it will be like for the children when they go back and forth between homes. So I would be in the house during the week. My ex-husband would be out of town for work, and then he would come back into town on the weekends, and I would go stay elsewhere. And it 
was beneficial because it was less expensive and all that kind of stuff, but it gave the kids roots and kept them here. And we had to do the shuffling back and forth and the packing. And I tell you, it was, it could be a nightmare. And so ever since then, I've never forgotten what it felt like for an adult, but then for a child to have to go through that. And I wonder all the time as to what it's like for a child. And I've talked to my kids about this, but when you have two different houses in the first place, but then they're so different and they run differently. Expectations are different. Can you take us a little bit through what that could potentially, what that, what you see happening and what that's like for a child and how parents should navigate that to make it as easy as possible for kids? Yeah. Let me, let me break that down a little bit because I think we need to distinguish the difference between parallel parenting as a style of co-parenting versus a parenting schedule. Because a parenting schedule is the timeshare split. So one parent has weekends, one parent has week. One parent has a week on, and the next parent has a week on. Sometimes it's two days, two days, weekends rotate. So that is a parenting schedule. Parenting schedules are independent to the co-parenting style. So you could have a week on, week off, and have an incredibly conflictual co-parenting style. Or you could have a very cooperative co-parenting style. Or you could have a parallel co-parenting style. So, So that's an important distinction. And so if we break this apart a little bit, parallel parenting, regardless of the timeshare, the research would tell us it works and there's merits to it if if it's needed. Having said that, if you think of parallel parenting as a train going down the tracks, right? And so you're on one side of the, or you're on one, you know, the long, narrow parts of the track, right? I don't know what those are called, the side rails, perhaps, you're going down one and your co-parents going down another and the rungs across or the ties across the railroad track, those are the points of communication. And there's not that many of them, right? You try to eliminate them. So you might have to communicate when it comes to, hey, I gave the kids, I gave so-and-so Advil this morning just before they came to your house. Or so-and-so, um, we went to the emergency room, here's what happened. Or so-and-so is due for a dental checkup. So there's really, those touch points are few and far between, but essential, right? You're not talking about hey, there's a birthday party at my house. Would you like to come over? That's a very different style of Mm co-parenting. So parallel parenting can work as long as you're both driving the train in the same direction, Mm -hmm. right? There's where we run into a problem is if you're not driving the train in the same direction. When it comes to, hey, I made a dental appointment. Well, I'm not using your dentist. I'm going to go to this dentist. Right. So now we've got all such sorts of confusion around the dentist. Right. Or I don't agree that this child needs ADHD meds, so I'm not going to give them on my parenting time. And you are. So parallel parenting is by all means not perfect. There are lots and lots of problems that can happen, especially if it's conflictual. So that that's a sep- the separation of, of parallel parenting from the parenting schedule. Now, back to what you were saying about the parenting schedule. Yeah. Kids move and live in, in and out of a suitcase not easy, right? Going back and forth. And and we know that when kids are really, really little, infants, toddlers, you know, before going to school, before going, um, you know, grade one-ish and stuff, they tend to, there tends to be a a, a more of a stable home base, less of a back and forth type of a co-parenting style generally to meet their developmental needs. Then in those school age years, that back and forth tends to be more stable. Kids kind of roll with that pretty good. But when you get into the teens, you start to see it becoming a little less stable again and kids kind of wanting that home space. Their peers are over here. They are tired of moving their stuff back and forth. They dig their heels in. So it's, there, there are sort of some places in a kid's child's development where it's easier uh, rather than harder. Things that we can do as parents to make that easier 
if and where possible, is to eliminate the need to bring stuff back and forth, meaning can there be a bike at each home? Is that a possibility, right? Mm -hmm. Can there be a set of clothes at each home? That may not be possible. And so if that's not possible, to allow a great deal of freedom about what goes back and forth, right? If you want to wear that sweater, even though I bought that for you over there, and, and that needs to be okay, because that causes a level of stress that is absolutely unnecessary for a child's development. Who needs to be spending time thinking about, I want to wear this schedule, this, this sweater, because I've got school pictures, but I can't bring it because mom will be mad because she paid for it. And, mm-hmm. and I get it. Things go missing, right? It happens. Uh, as a parent, you know, if you're buying a bathing suit and it goes over to the other parent's house and now you don't have it when they go swimming, it's complicated. I get that. Mm-hmm. But if you can't have two of everything, uh, then or of many things, then at least allow some of that freedom for these kids to go back and forth with their with their materials and their belongings. Exactly. I think that would be not only helpful for the children because the stress, I think, you know, even just hearing you talk about it, and I know when I've talked about it with my kids and then talking to other parents, the, uh, you know, you almost get a pit in your stomach thinking about, oh, I don't want to offend one or the other, or upset one or the other. Uh, it happens to adults too of, you know, and they don't want to upset their parents because oftentimes this happens, this goes right into adulthood and, and people have that experience with their parents and it can be really awful and it can uh, not only be stressful, but also detract from the enjoyment of their time together, but also for the parents, because, you know, it's bad enough. You're having to rejig your entire life after separating and divorcing. You know, it's it's best to, I always like to say that you want to find areas where you can simplify things and streamline things so that even if you get along great, but why make things more difficult? Why, you know, I don't want people's lives to be, you know, narrowed down to now we're fighting about how many pairs of jeans you have at your house and whether they're the ones I bought for you or not. Because you're right, there are many instances where the money just isn't there and it's very cost prohibitive to have two sets of everything. But there needs to be some cooperation. There needs to be that that understanding that these are the kids' items and to not cause, not have it be a cause for another um, issue to occur between the parents. There needs to be more communication because oftentimes what I find happens is there's the intent placed on it that you're not taking care of things or not, which is oftentimes not the case. Like you said, things go missing. It happens to adults all the time too, but it's very difficult for some parents to do that, but it's a matter of because there's a lot of other insidious things that are going on. And then that's just one more issue. And that, see, I know, you know, with there's so much conflict between them based on not even the children or the, the genes or whatever the issue is, it's about past past issues that they haven't dealt with but I think it's really key mm-hmm. to get everyone to come back to the fact that what's this really like for the kids and that's what I try and get people to understand and I try to remember too that as much as this is going on for the adults can you imagine these poor little guys even as teenagers being stuck in the middle of this and having to go back and forth between moms and dad's house but you know one thing that I wonder about too is it is it advisable uh and I know it's not always easy for parents to do this is it is it best or does it not matter for them to have the same, let's say, rules and expectations in the different households? Or if they're different, can it be confusing for them? Or what's what's your thought on that? Of course, in an ideal world, you know, there's consistent rules, there's consistent expectations. That would be fantastic. It's not realistic. And I say that in part because you know, there's this hourglass theory of, of relationships. And so that if you, you picture like an hourglass, when you first meet, you know, if, if you think of the wide part as, you know, you on one side, your, your your partner on the other, you gradually come together into that narrow part of the hourglass with your ideas and your beliefs. And let's just talk about parenting, around parenting, let's say. 
And so then you start to, you know, ideally get on the same page with a number of things because you're communicating and you're talking and all that kind of stuff, presumably. And then when you separate, it starts to go back out to that other end of the hourglass, the bottom part of it, right? Mm-hmm. You start to get more divergent. So that is normal. That is expected. And so, you know, kids are going to have to navigate this. I think one of the traps that we fall into as co-parents is, you know, when a child comes home and they will, and they say, hey, dad doesn't let me watch that TV program. How come you do? Or, um, you know, we don't have to eat broccoli at mom's house. I don't know why we have to here. <laughs> what you want to be careful of is saying, well, that's because dad's a fool, or that's because mom's too strict. You know, it, it you don't want to give commentary on the motives of another parent. You want to say, well, that's the rule in our house. Everyone has different rules. The school's going to have different rules than mom yes. is and then dad is. And so if you want to know about a rule, you should ask the person whose rule it is. So why don't you ask dad about that rule? So really to accept, you know, accept as parents that it's a rule. It is what it is. And, and it's really not your place anymore to comment on that rule. I like that. I like the fact that you're right. It would be ideal if they could have some consistency, but I don't know necessarily if that even occurs when there's an intact family because at least, you know, growing up in my family and in many people's mom was different than dad. In my case, mom was more strict and she was kind of keeping us in control. And my dad was, you know, party time dad. And, you know, my mom wasn't around. We would go in and uh, go, go to the grocery store and buy treats. Whereas my mom kept control on that. And that was the beauty of it. I liked that. And I, we lose that sometimes when we're co-parenting because then the parent has to be everything has to be everything that perhaps they weren't that wasn't part of the role before but I think it's also healthy for kids to understand you you mentioned a great point that schools have different rules other people's houses have different rules that it gives them a window into learning to adapt learning to respect but most importantly the point that you made if you're if you're interested as to why or you're confused just inquire just ask Uh, you may not like the answer but it's something that kids need to learn to do in life because you know never will there be um consistency ever in life really and that's something that is skill that i think they need to learn early on it's just a matter of how parents handle that so i think that's smart because a lot of parents i think myself included at the beginning you know you start to panic and think oh god everything's so different over there and then you can get caught up in what you were describing as how do i explain to these kids and and, and worrying that things are so different. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, at least if it's not a safety issue, it's really, it's not your business. And, um, and typically, oftentimes these things aren't, it's, it's something minor, like the broccoli, you know, they're not going to get scurvy if they don't have broccoli you know, all week or whatever. It's, it's sometimes it's about the perspective. And uh, I think we tend to lose that oftentimes when we're in these situations. So Glenda, what is the best way for people to connect with you? You can get a hold of me by going to my website, www.luxpsychology.ca, and you can message me through the contact page. Shit I Learned from My Divorce is written by me, Trish Guys, and produced by Barry Guys. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Guys. I would love to have you tell a friend or a family member about this podcast, and you can help me share the important concepts I cover by leaving a rating and review of Shit I Learned From My Divorce on Google Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguise.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trish Guys, and on Facebook and Instagram at Trish Guys Divorce Coach. 
Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned from My Divorce with me, Trish Guys, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Until next time, be good to yourself and to your kids.